Let's continue in Esther. I know I've said this already, but I'm really enjoying this study. I hope you are. What a powerful book. It's funny, yesterday I was talking to a friend of mine, and he says, this is what I'm preaching on tomorrow. He goes, what are you preaching on? And, and I told him for the morning service, I'm going to be in the book of James, and told him what we're going to be covering. He goes, that's my favorite Old Testament passage. And I just like, ah, uh, he just started laughing. <laughs> Anyhow, I hang around weird people. We're going to be in Esther chapter 5. <coughs> now remember, Esther has gone to the king unannounced, found favor in his sight, invited him and Haman to a banquet, and at that banquet said, please come tomorrow to another banquet which I will prepare for you. And this is the events that happened the rest of that day, looking at it from Haman's perspective. Okay, And while we do not know all the reasons for Esther's delay in telling the king her request, we do know God had a plan to destroy Haman. So Haman leaves the banquet feeling pretty high and mighty until he goes to the gate and sees Mordecai. Then he goes home and he rehearses the recent events to his wife and friends, and his wife comes up with a plot to eliminate Mordecai and relieve her husband's great distress. Because, you know, one guy is causing this great distress. Haman is a man that is filled with pride. Matter of fact, the title of this morning's message is The Arrogance of Haman. Proverbs 16, 18 reminds us, Pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And so I want you to keep that in mind as we look at the arrogance of Haman this morning, looking at verses 9 through 14. Esther chapter 5, starting at verse 9. Then went, then went Haman forth that day joyful and with a glad heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he stood not up nor moved for him. He was full of indignation against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman refrained himself. And when he came home, he sent and called for his friends and Zerash, his wife. And Haman told them of the glory of his riches and the multitude of his children and all the things wherein the king had promoted him and how he had advanced him above the princes and servants of the king. Haman said, moreover, Yea, Esther the queen did let no man come in with the king under the banquet that she had prepared but myself, and tomorrow I am invited to her also with the king. Yet all this availeth me nothing, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting in the king's gate. Then said Zeresh, <clears throat> his wife, and all his friends unto him, Let a gallows be made of fifty cubits high, and tomorrow speak thou unto the king that Mordecai may be hanged thereon. Then go thou in merrily with the king unto the banquet. And the thing pleased Haman, and he caused the gallows to be made. So here's how I want us to examine this this morning. First of all, I want us to observe Haman's rejoicing. We'll see that in the beginning part of 9 and then verses 11 and 12. Haman's rejoicing. Then secondly, in the second part of 9 and then verses 10 and 13, we'll see Haman's rage. Haman's rage. And then our final point will be Haman's revenge found in verse 14. It's interesting because we know the rest of the story that his pride ended up becoming his own demise because I know you all have read the account already. So the following day, instead of Mordecai hanging on those gallows, Haman himself ends up hanging on those very gallows. But we need to learn that pride brings destruction. So let's ask the Lord for his guidance, please. Father, we thank you again for this opportunity to study this passage and teach us, we pray. Lord, help us to <coughs> remain humble before you, and we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name.
Amen. Haman's rejoicing. Our joy should not be based on circumstances. He left the banquet happy because besides the king, he's the only guy invited. And he's happy that, man, I am on top of the world because I'm really somebody. The word joyful has the idea of being merry or glad. So as they went fair with Haman that day, joyful and with a glad heart. The glad heart has the idea of being pleasant or agreeable. Because he had just been honored and was rejoicing because, after all, he deserved it, right? Sure he did. But those who are truly humble do not like the limelight. You know, if you study history, and I'm sure you all remember studying George Washington, how that when they were going to appoint him the uh, general to uh, fight the war, he really didn't want the position, nor did he stay when they were giving him the accolades. And as soon as he won the war, what did he do? You know, think about history at that point. He was the military leader who just won the war. What did they typically do at that point? Set themselves up as king. But here George Washington goes back to Virginia, back to his farm and says, I'm done. And then they had to come to him and say, George, We're trying to put together this new nation now. We need a president. And they had to beg him to leave his farm and come. And he serves two terms. And what's he do at the end of the second term? Something that had never been done before, a peaceful transition of power. He was a great example of a humble man. And honestly, from what I've read of George Washington, he actually did not like the limelight. Just God had chosen him to use him. And they constantly had to kind of Bring him along. Come on, George, go do it, because we know you're the leader, you know, but he just didn't like that position. But Haman's joy was based on prosperity, posterity, and position. Yes, it alliterated. Prosperity, posterity, and position. Verse 11, Haman told them of the glory of his riches, or the abundance of his riches, I am just a rich guy, and I'm going to get even richer because as soon as we kill all these Jews, I'm going to get all that bounty. And man, I have it made because I got money to last. I got money in the bank. I am really a rich, wealthy guy. But Jeremiah warns us, Thus saith the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, neither the mighty man in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches. So his first source of joy is his riches. Now his second is the multitude of his children, or his posterity. Now, children can be a source of joy. Proverbs 23, verses 24 and 25, The father of the righteous shall greatly rejoice, and he that begatteth a wise son shall have joy of him. The father, thy father and thy mother shall be glad, and she that bear thee shall rejoice. John says in 3 John 4, No greater joy have I than to hear my children walk in truth. Children can bring joy. And that is a legitimate source, I believe, of rejoicing, but we should not be rejoicing as in, hey, look what I have done. I'm some great parent in rearing my children, but praise be to God that he is using my children in spite of my failures, right? So he's glorying in his prosperity, his riches. He's glorying in his posterity, but then thirdly, his position. It says, in all the things wherein the king had promoted him, And how he advanced him above the princes and servants of the king. I am top dog, and I deserve to be. And that's what brings me happiness. 
because he felt he deserved to be honored and worshipped because that's why Mordecai will not fall to him because he's wanting this act of worship, if you will. And Jesus warns against doing things for the praise of men. He says they have their reward. If you do things for the praise of men, when men applaud you, according to what Jesus said, that's it, that's your reward, be happy with it. Christian, this is why you and I in life should not do things for the praise of men, but for the glory of God. Because I most certainly would rather have treasures laid up in heaven. I'd rather have eternal rewards than the temporary applause of men, wouldn't you? Because are not people fickle? I mean, look at even reading about the life of Christ, how one day they're all sitting there putting out palm branches, yelling Hosanna and praising God and praising Jesus Christ as he's riding into Jerusalem. And then within a week, that very crowd crying, crucify him. The crowd's pretty fickle, trust me. But true joy only comes from Jesus Christ. Our joy should not be based as it was for Haman on material things or things of this world, but our joy should be based in our relationship with Jesus Christ. Because then no matter the circumstances, you and I still can have true joy. You see, the problem with Haman's joy was because it was based on things and people, then if the people or the things that weren't, if the things were taken away or if the people didn't react the way he wanted them to, his joy could be gone. As a matter of fact, it was because of one man. Think of that. One man took away his joy. I am glad my joy is not based on things that can be taken away or people whose attitudes can change, but my joy is based in the fact that I know Jesus Christ. John 15, 11, These things have I spoken unto you, that my joy might remain in you, and that your joy might be full. 1 John 1, 4, And these things write we unto you, that your joy may be full. 2 John 12, Having many things to write unto you, I would not write with paper and ink, but I trust to come unto you and to speak to you face to face that our joy may be full. So our joy is not based on circumstances, station in life, material goods, but on a relationship with Jesus Christ. I am thankful that even in the darkest hours of life, we can still be rejoicing. We're not Paul and Silas rejoicing, even in prison, and singing. So we've seen Haman's rejoicing totally based on things. Let's move secondly to Haman's rage. Verse 9, When Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he stood not up nor moved for him, he was full of indignation against Mordecai. You see, Mordecai stood firm on his conviction. He did not stand for Haman. He was continuing to do whatever it was that he was doing when Haman walked, walked by and did not stand in reverence to him. <clears throat> he was not going to worship a man. As a matter of fact, in Revelation 22, 9, when John went to worship the angel, it says, Then saith he unto me, See thou do it not, for I am thy fellow servant, and of thy brethren the prophets, and, what, and, and of them which keep the saying of the book, Worship God. Worship 
God. And you see throughout the Bible, every time a man would try to fall down and worship an angel, the angel would stop them and say, I don't deserve worship. God does. Now, if we're not even to worship the angels, then why should we ever think that a man deserves worship? He does not deserve worship. And Haman thought that he deserved worship, and Mordecai knew better. Now, Mordecai is not being arrogant in his stand. He's taking a true stand, saying, I am a servant of God, and I worship him only. But I like also the fact, the words here in verse 9, it says that he stood not up nor moved for him. The word moved has the idea to quake in terror or tremble. He was not intimidated by, by Haman. Now remember, we already see prior the others coming up to Mordecai saying, why don't you just do it? Just do it. Just to make peace. Just come on. Why do you have to be the guy that's always against them? And I can imagine the look of Haman at Mordecai, that look of disdain, that look of trying to intimidate him and having his cronies go and try and intimidate Mordecai. But you know what the Bible says? He wasn't moved. He wasn't shaken. He wasn't quake. He wouldn't be in terror. He wasn't going to live in fear because his faith in God was greater. And Christian, we live in a society today that is trying to get us to live in fear, but our faith needs to be greater. Because the intimidators are out there, are they not? And I think it's only going to get worse before it gets better. Take a strong stand. God will give you the boldness to stand for him. Psalm 18 and verse 2, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my strength, in whom will I trust, my buckler and the horn of my salvation and my high tower. Boy, there's so much in that verse. We could spend all day on it. But just those terms of which the psalmist says of God, He's my rock. He's my fortress. He's my high tower. He's my strength. He's my deliverer. Now, we know this in our head, but then, Christian, we need to live like it and not be intimidated by the world. I have gone knocking on doors with people that as soon as the first door slams in their face, they're ready to quit. Why be intimidated? We need to say that the apostles in Acts chapter 4, verse 29, And now, Lord, behold their threatenings, and grant of thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word. Now, it doesn't say with all brashness. It says with all boldness. And you know what we have lost is our boldness to stand for truth and preach the word. I don't have to give excuses for the word of God. It is the truth. And I can say it boldly. So Haman was rejoicing in all this advancement and all his riches. He walks out to the gate. And there Mordecai is, and Mordecai just maybe looks up at him and goes right about his business, doing whatever he was doing. Not intimidated, not shaken. And I want you to think of this. That one thing ruined Haman's day. You laugh because it's so absurd, isn't it? It is so absurd that Mordecai, not standing for him and worshiping him, it's the one thing that ruined his day. He still has all his wealth. He still has all his children. He still has this great position in the kingdom, but yet his whole day is ruined because of Mordecai. Can I say, get over yourself, buddy? I mean, really? But 
His whole joy was dependent on others. It says he became full of indignation or rage or wrath or hot displeasure. All because of one man's response. His, he went from all happy and sitting there high and mighty to full of anger because of one man. But may I say something, Christian? When you stand for truth and you stand for what is right and you preach the truth and you tell people the word of God, you cannot help the response, but many times that's the exact response people are going to have. That's why I say we don't do it with brashness, but we do it with boldness, and I am not responsible for their reaction to the truth. Because you know what? They hated Jesus Christ when he preached the truth, so I don't expect any less from me. And all Mordecai was doing was standing for the truth that God alone deserves worship and not a man. That's truthfully all he's standing for. He's standing upon his convictions, and his convictions brought this anger to this wicked man. You know why? Because this wicked man had no convictions. And it really was a conviction to him in his heart of how wrong he is. His whole focus became on Mordecai, perhaps because of the integrity of Mordecai. Because one who, our lives need to show Christ to others, Matthew 5, 13 and 14, and be ye the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is therefore good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden under foot of men. Ye are the light of the world, a city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. What if Mordecai had listened to the advice of all the others and said, you know what, you're right, it's not worth making a big fuss over. I'll just go ahead and capitulate. I'll just go ahead and bow down to him. I know in my heart I'm really not worshiping him, but I don't want to make a big fuss about it. We wouldn't have the same account in the book of Esther we do, do we? Because you do realize it's Mordecai's stand that gets him so angry him being Haman, so angry as to build the gallows upon which he's going to hang. See, God uses that very thing to bring the demise of Haman. And Christian, you and I need to understand when we take a stand for God, he can use it in great and mighty ways. We don't always need to know or understand why or how God's going to use it. We just need to do it because it's right. Stand for him. Speak the truth. Haman considered all that he had, all his wealth, all his children, his great position as nothing if Mordecai was still around. That's what he says in verse 13. Yet this availeth me nothing so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting in the gate's house. That's quite a statement. This does me no good whatsoever as long as this one man lives. But I want you to look at verse 10. Nevertheless, Haman refrained himself. So he, he didn't say a word. When he came home, he sent and called for his friends and Zeresh, his wife. Okay? So here's, here's the scene. He goes home. He's mad. He's angry. He doesn't do anything at the moment. But as soon as he gets home, he calls all his friends over and calls his wife and says, I want you all to come here. And then he has a pity party. Has everybody over so they can listen to poor Haman tell how miserable his life is because I'm so rich, I have all these children, I have this wonderful position in life, but none of it does me any good because of one man and the way he treats me. Don't you feel sorry for him? His friends did. His wife did. You're not very good friends. You're not feeling sorry for him. What's wrong with y'all? <laughs> I mean, it, you know, all these riches that he has, 
This great position he has is nothing because of the way Mordecai treats him. Mordecai is so bad, he needs to be eliminated. You're not feeling sorry for him still, I can tell. Well, he has this pity party, literally calls his own little self pity party. That tells you a lot about his character too, doesn't it? But we need to be careful because we don't necessarily call our friends over anymore. We go on Facebook and we put on, uh, oh, please pray for me. I had a bad day at work. What about the 50 good days you had at work? Please pray for me. So-and-so was not nice to me at work today. You know what? It sounds exactly the same way. It's exactly the same thing, folks. God has blessed you abundantly, and you sit there whining about something that happened so petty. Now, you expect a pity party. When you do it, uh-oh, preacher's gone to meddling now. And it is hilarious to me how everybody, oh, I'm so sorry that happened to you. Oh, they're so bad. They're such an evil person. They don't even know all the circumstances. All they know is you whined on Facebook, and now they're all going to be sympathetic to you. That's the modern way of doing what Haman did. But the problem is now it's not just you and your friends that know about it. It's everybody in the world has to know about it. So he calls his friends and his wife to hear how terrible his life is because of Mordecai. Tells them all the wonderful things happened to him, and then he claims it's worthless because of this one man. How insane. Well, poor Haman. I mean, he even got invited to this banquet, and it was only he and the king invited to the banquet. And tomorrow, he gets to go to another banquet, and it's only he and the king to get to go. But that's nothing, as long as Mordecai's alive. Now, there's already a plan set in place that's going to eliminate this man and all the Jews. Is there not? So, how about a little patience and just wait? You ever think of that? But instead, his wife and his friends come up with a better plan to expedite the situation. And this brings us to our last point of Haman's revenge. Now, it says in verse 14, Then said Zerash, his wife, and all his friends unto him. Now let me stop right there. You and I have influential authority on others. You say, what in the world are you talking about? Okay, like the husband being the head of the home has a authority, a positional authority. God has placed the man in charge of the home, right? Okay. And it is a positional authority that when he makes a decision, God is going to hold him accountable for what is happening in his household. Is that not correct? Okay. Just as I have a positional authority as pastor, I'm going to give an account of what happens in this church. Is that correct? Not you. I will. John's going to give an account of what happens in his home. Not me. Not Lillian. Because he is the positional authority in that home, right? But, while he's the positional authority and Ed's the positional authority in his home, is it not true that Andrea has an influential authority in her home? Absolutely she does. King Ahab, he wants a vineyard. Problem is, the vineyard's already owned by Nabal. And he also went home and had a little pity party. These, these guys have been big, big authority. They've really got a problem with their egos. But he goes home and he's having a pity party because, you know, the kingdom's not enough. He just wants this one vineyard owned by Nabal. And so his wonderful, loving, kind wife that everybody so admires, Jezebel, comes up with this plan of, <clears throat> don't you worry about it. And she basically has Nabal killed. And 
then gives the, ki the king the vineyard he wanted, right? Did she use her influential authority in a good or bad way? Bad way. All right, we're in the book of Esther. Esther is in the middle of trying to use her influential authority as queen to get the king to save the Jews. Is that not exactly what she's doing? Yes, it is. Obviously, a good use of her influential authority. Okay. Haman's wife and friends have an influential authority over Haman. And instead of using it in a proper fashion of saying, Haman, you have all this wealth. You have this wonderful family. You have this great position. Just ignore the one guy. And by the end of the year, he's going to be dead anyhow. So just get over it. They say, we got a plan for you. Let's build a gallows 50 cubits high, 75 feet high. I don't understand why it had to be 75 feet high because, you know, even if I'm a tall guy, if I were really tall, like seven foot, I mean, 10 foot gallows is still long and high enough to hang me on. But why did it have to be 75 foot high? I have no idea why they had to build it so high. And it had to be built expediently overnight because the plan is before you go to the banquet tomorrow, you approach the king and you tell the king that Mordecai needs to be hanged on this gallows. And so when you walk into the banquet, your problems are over. That was an improper use or an abuse of their influential authority because they took his situation and took his emotional state and they played on it to say, say let's just get rid of the guy. Now, think of this. You, Haman's happiness, is more important than the life of Mordecai. Is that not what they're saying? Your happiness is more important than this man's life. Now, we look at that and say, how absurd. But may I say it's done every day in the United States of America because you know why most abortions are performed? My happiness is more important than their life. And we live in a sick society that is just like Haman's wife and friends because we have these clinics saying, you're too young. You don't make enough money. You're not married. You just can't do this. You haven't finished your college. You have to get your career. You don't have time for a child. So we're just going to eliminate it. We in our country are every bit as disgusting as these people are. But then, verse 14, then said Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends unto him, let a gallows be made of 50 cubits high. Tomorrow speak down the king and the that Mordecai be hanged thereon, then go out in merrily with the king unto the banquet. You can be happy because your happiness is so important. Now let's look at the next words. And the thing pleased Haman, and he caused the gallows to be made. First of all, the decision was made very hastily. And hasty decisions often lead to regret. Proverbs 14, 29, he that is slow to wrath is a great understanding, but he that is hasty of spirit exalteth folly. The Bible has a lot to be said about being hasty in decisions. As a matter of fact, the city of Havelock just recently had some money that was being given to the city, but the whole process in which it was being done was this very hasty process, and 
it just didn't seem right to me. And I made it very clear in the meeting. I said, I'm going to vote on this because I believe the city does need the money. I said, however, I am very concerned about how this was handled so hastily. Things should not be done this way. And we typically don't. And I don't understand why this one decision, we're making all these exemptions and making this thing done very hastily. And I even pointed out that many times hasty decisions lead to regret later. But not only was it a hasty decision, but it was an angry decision. Because remember, he's full of indignation. This is why he's having his pity party. Because he needs some, some of his friends and his wife to stroke his ego and tell him, oh, it's going to be okay. And he's all mad because of one man. Proverbs fourteen seventeen: He that is soon angry dealeth foolishly, and a man of wicked devices is hated. Many foolish decisions have been made in anger. And I think everyone in this room can attest to that. At some point in your life, you did something in anger that you wish you could take back. But the decision pleased an evil man. To kill another brought pleasure, which truly shows the depravity of the heart of man. How wicked to think that my happiness is more important than another's life. And how wicked to think that they deserve to die so that I can be happy. May I say, I already pointed out abortion. This thought, my happiness is the ultimate goal, has become so prevalent in our society that it is amazing the wicked things people will do for their happiness. You see, the whole LGBT alphabet soup community don't want you to say marriage is between one man and one woman because it doesn't make them happy. doesn't matter. It's true. doesn't matter when a baby's born that the doctor says, it's a boy or girl. I had to fill out a form the other day. I had an antibody testing to see if I have COVID antibodies. And unfortunately, I don't. But whatever. Man's heart is desperately wicked. Haman showed the wickedness of his heart. He was an arrogant man. He rejoiced in the promotion of self He was enraged by one man's conviction and sought to kill the man who was more righteous than himself. Things haven't changed in this world, have they? Wicked men still do wicked things. But you know, the great thing is, and again, I'll tell you since you already know the rest of the story, his pride brought his own destruction. I can't wait till we get to chapter 6 because I think it's amazing that when he goes to the king to say, I got this gallows, it's time to hang Mordecai, that he ends up having to take Mordecai out in a little parade. <laughs> and then he goes to the banquet, obviously very angry at this point, and leaves the banquet to go to the very gallows that he meant for Mordecai. You can't make this stuff up. I'm telling you, it's amazing. All right, well then, since I said that, we don't have to cover chapter six, right? No, I'm kidding, we will. <laughs> Let us close with a word of prayer.